Amen. That is our story. It's a wonderful hymn reminding us of who we are. And what I want to do tonight is also uh, remind us of who we are according to the scriptures as the Lord himself uh, sets this before us in the passage in Colossians chapter 3. I encourage you to have that open as we often uh, will ask you on your lap to follow along in God's word as we read it together. It is good for us to be here this evening. I'm encouraged that it's not just the women who want to greet uh, Christiana, but it's the men as well. John, your time is coming after the service. But, uh, and all of us want to certainly uh, greet and welcome her into this God's family through the sacrament of baptism that we've witnessed and rejoicing in God's mercies to her. Uh, but it is for us to consider what he has done in our lives as well. And so as you turn there, I want to begin this way. Over the years, as we've gone through various studies here at Grace, and even prior to that at Village, we've often talked about the attributes of God. We've encouraged one another to study those attributes of God that we might better understand who he is and the greatness of our God. The second chapter of our confession lays out uh, who God is according to the scriptures, a wonderful summary worth memorizing even we don't typically memorize the confession. This certainly is worth this portion. Uh, it says this, There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. What a fantastic summary of all that we understand God to be as he's revealed himself in his word. One can hardly improve upon the language chosen by those Westminster divines, a statement that has served the church very well over many years. But even before that, there were statements that were equally helpful. The earliest Reformed confessions written in 1561, some 80 years prior to Westminster, begins their confession, the Belgic Confession, this way. Article 1, there is only one God. We believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being, which we call God, and that he is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. It's interesting as you look at the comparison of these early confessions what the Westminster Confession referred to as a pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, the Belgic Confession refers to as one simple and spiritual being. Now, we all know what a spiritual being is. According to the Children's Catechism, God is a spirit. He does not have a body like ours. That's what it means for him to be purely spirit. But what does it mean for God to be simple, according to the Belgic Confession? 
Well, that is the doctrine of divine simplicity. We've talked about that in various contexts, but what does it mean to call God simple? Kevin DeYoung, in his uh, own way, which is very always very engaging, writes this regarding the simplicity of God. By simple, he says, we do not mean that God is slow or dim-witted. Of course not. Nor do we mean that God is easy to understand. He is not. Simple as a divine attribute is the opposite of compound or compound. The simplicity of God means that God is not made up of his attributes. He does not consist of goodness and mercy, justice and power. Rather, he is goodness, mercy, justice and power. Every attribute of God is identical with his essence. God is whatever he has. He is not the composite of his attributes, the compound, the joining together of these attributes, some in greater and some in lesser amounts. God is a simple being without parts or pieces. His attributes do not stick to him. He is what they are. Now, that's very interesting, engages our minds, and that's one of the reasons I begin the sermon this way tonight is certainly to cause us to think more, more deeply about the God that we serve, his character, his nature, and yes, even the incomprehensibility of that character and nature. But the second reason I wanted to begin this way is because of what I'm doing in the sermon this evening because I believe this doctrine of God's simplicity is reflected in the Christian life to which God has called us as followers of Jesus Christ and the simplicity of the Christian life as it's signified in the sacrament of baptism. In Christ, God is making for us life simple again. One of those places that we see this is in Colossians 3. And so please stand as we read these verses. This is the last time I'll have you stand before we end the service with the singing of a hymn. But this is Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. For context, listen, this is God's holy word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Thus far, the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, 
The flowers, they fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we would pray simply tonight that you would give us that view of the simple Christian life, not complicated, not made up of many parts, but simply focused and centered upon one central truth, our union with the Lord Jesus Christ and all that flows from it. May we understand these things, may we be taken up by them in the spirit, and Father, may you press them into our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Make no mistake about it, regardless of what the title says, we know that life is, in this world, complicated and confusing. We see that all around us. You simply follow the news, you will see it in our culture today, everywhere you turn. We are obsessed today, it seems, with how people identify themselves. You can get fired from your job, canceled on social media, and even lose family relationships if you misgender someone. I was only recently, uh, I only recently experienced in filling out, as we all do, many different forms. And I think this is the only time I remember ever seeing it, that there was listed on the form other instead of simply male or female. Now we are told at the end of 2022 that there are at least, and Google told me this, so don't blame me, there are at least 72 possible choices for gender that people can choose from rather than going to the gender assigned to you at birth, which is how people talk about these things now. You're not male or female. That was assigned to you at birth. Well, I would say, yes, it was assigned to you at birth by God himself, who created mankind, male and female. He created them. Add to that countless other ways that life in a fallen world has become so complicated and confusing. And you have what we are seeing today, which is an ever-increasing, shockingly increasing rate of depression among young people and many, many others. How did we get here? How did we get into such a mess? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It all began in the beginning. Life in paradise was, I would argue, simple. It was very simple. There was no confusion. There were no complications to life in paradise. Adam and Eve walked with God. They delighted to obey him. Everything they did was for the glory of the one who made them. And they were at peace and they loved where they were. They were created for one great purpose, to one great end, the glory of God. They had one single holy passion, as Pastor Fisher reminded us last week from Psalm 27, that they may dwell in the house of the Lord. They were all the days of their lives to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. They were and to inquire in his temple. But then Satan came along. And what did he bring? He brought confusion. You remember his first question to the woman, not even the substance of his question, but how he began did God actually say, did God actually say, with that question in man's fall, life became complicated and confusing. One single passion, one Godward love became a thousand passions and competing loves focused inward towards self and to the things of this world. 
And so we live today in a sea of confusion where we are being told at every turn who we are, what we're to believe, how we're to live, and all without any reference to God whom the world has judged to be irrelevant at best and the great violator of your personal freedom and expression at worst. It is into this world, this confused world, that Christ came as the second Adam to redeem a people to God. He came, we know, because we read of him in the prophets with one holy passion, the same passion that Psalm 27 speaks of, with a desire and a delight in doing the Father's will, that his single aim was to bring glory to his Father. And it is now, I believe, now through Christ that life is being made simple again for all who are called by him and are being made like him. I want you to see the simplicity of the Christian life, the focus of the Christian life so clearly set before us in many places, not the least of which is Colossians chapter 3. In the book of Colossians, Paul is concerned, if you look through the first two chapters, a careful reading will tell you he is concerned about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, over creation, over all the vain philosophies of men. He's confronting false teachers and their ideologies. Legalism, Christ is supreme to legalism. Mysticism, Christ is supreme Asceticism, drawing away from others, flagellating ourselves, etc. Christ is supreme over that as well. Every argument the world puts forth, Christ crushes it on the cross. At every point, Paul has proven that what they promised they could never deliver. But what God has done in Christ has triumphed over all things. And he has been given the first place above all things. These first verses of chapter 3, then, much like Ephesians, three chapters of doctrine, three chapters of practical application, Colossians is two chapters of doctrine and two chapters of practical application of that doctrine. So how do you apply the doctrine of the supremacy of Christ to the Christian life? You exalt Christ. He becomes central. The life of the Christian is simple in the sense that it is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Everything is about Jesus. Who we are is now answered in Jesus. Everything is pictured, signified in baptism, points to Jesus. And these verses point to it as well. These verses we know are rooted in baptism. If you look carefully back to chapter 2, especially in verses 11 and following, you'll see that Paul is picking up the argument from these verses in the beginning of chapter 3. He says in verse 12, for instance, of chapter 2, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. You see, Paul, when he begins chapter 3 and he says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, he's picking up with that argument. So in a sense, this, these first four verses and all that flows out of them 
are really rooted in his understanding of what baptism is and our identification with Jesus in baptism. And so we'll look at it that way tonight. He's talking about baptism, as we read earlier and confessed together, which deals with and points to as a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace of his ingrafting us into Christ, our union with Jesus Christ. That phrase is most important in the definition of baptism, according to the scriptures, are being joined to, engrafted into Jesus Christ. This is really what Paul is concerned about in these verses. And so I want to look very briefly with you tonight at three simple points. They build upon one another. They really are one whole single point, but I'm dividing them out for reasons. The first is this, the union with Christ of which Paul here speaks, our union with Jesus Christ. You see that here very clearly, this language, if you have been raised with Christ, right? Seek the things which are above where Christ is himself seated at God's right hand. For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. This is all language of union with Jesus Christ, the central doctrine in the mind of the Apostle Paul as he writes all of his letters. It is always and constantly operating in the back of his mind because Paul understands the simplicity of the Christian life to be centered upon this doctrine of our union with Jesus Christ. He died, he says, we died with him. He was raised, we were raised with him. He lives, we live because of him. Even before the foundation of the world, Paul to the Ephesian believers says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This means that the work of our salvation began long before time itself began, as God chose us in Jesus, that great doctrine of the covenant of redemption we studied in the book of Isaiah, the workings of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this divine meeting that they held, if you will, before the foundation of the world, where God determined to save a people. Jesus determined in obedience to the Father to save that people through coming in human form and dying, the Spirit promising to apply the work of Jesus to all whom the Father had chosen. It is all about union with Christ. We were beloved of God before time began. We were in Christ, united to him before we were ever born. Notice the language in these verses as well of location. We're raised with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places. It speaks of his resurrection and ascension that when he was raised, when he ascended, in a very real sense, we as believers united to him were raised and ascended with him to the Father's right hand. We are seated right now with him at the Father's right hand. Ephesians 2 tells us this, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
You see this language of union with Jesus. Whatever happened to Jesus, whatever Jesus did, happens, affects us as well. But it means far more than that. And its implications are what Paul will speak of in these verses. It's because of our union with Christ that Paul can say, put to death then the things of the flesh. All that is earthly, these are not verses before us tonight, but look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Why? Because you've been raised with Christ. You're seated with him in heavenly places. This is what the, the scriptures mean by our union with Christ. It has practical implications. If we've died to sin, we ought no longer to live in accordance with sin at all. That's the very argument of Romans 6 read prior to the baptism this evening. Do you not know, he says, that all of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so baptism signifies for us the dying of ourselves to sin, being raised to newness of life by the power of God, by the grace of God. It's a reference to our union with Christ. It is who you are now, those of us who are baptized into Jesus Christ. Christiana, this is your new identity. You belong to Jesus. You are united to him. And it is true of every one of us who like her, are trusting in him. Seeing yourself this way, the way the Bible speaks about us as believers, this is how God has made life simple again, because this is our identity. There is no confusion here. There aren't 72 choices to choose from. There is only one, and you are in Christ if you are his. That is your identity, and it has these implications clearly but there's more to it and I'm building and expanding in this second point Paul also says our life our life is now in Christ it's not that just we're united to him but our very life is in him Jesus Christ is our life what does that mean what does it look like how does it affect us every day and how does it impact our relationships? Well, there are a lot of places we could turn to. Paul speaks it here this way of a life, he says, that is hidden with Christ now in God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God. You remember the language of Paul as he writes, conflicted about whether to stay and continue to serve or to go to be with Christ. Remember his statement, so very clear, so centered upon union with Christ. For me to live Christ. That's the end of it. It's the simple Christian life. For me to live, if I live, it's Christ. It's all Christ. And if I die, it is gain. I get to be with him in glory, hidden with Christ in God, as I believe with others, and I believe they're right, is a reference really to our security with Christ. 
It's not somehow that Christ is hidden, not able to be seen, or us not able to understand it. It's really a reference to the security of our life now in Christ. We are so connected, so inseparable to Jesus Christ that our very life is his, and he is our very life. He said it to Mary and Martha in John 11. I am, he says, the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Because the life of Jesus has now become our life. That is what Paul is saying here as he writes to these Colossian believers. And that is the simplicity of the Christian life. His life is ours. We are bound up forever with him. He is our life beginning to end. Everlasting, indestructible spiritual life is ours because of Jesus. Spurgeon, in a way that only Spurgeon can say it, writes this about this idea of Christ being our life. In the new nature of the Christian, there is much mystery, he says, but there is none as to what is its life. If you could cut into the center of the renewed heart, you would find sure footprints of divine life, for you would find love to Jesus. No, you would find Christ himself there. If you walk in search of the springs, of the sea, of the new nature, you will find the Lord Jesus at the fount of it all. All of my springs are in you, said David. Christ creates the life throbs of the believer's soul. He sends the life floods through the man according to his own will. If you could penetrate the brain of the believer, you would find Christ to be the central thought moving every other thought and causing every other thought to take root and grow out of itself. You would find Christ to be the true substance of the inner life of the spiritual nature of every soul quickened by the breath of heaven's life. Cut us open and you will find Christ is what he says, because Christ is our life. And so we can say, can't we, with Paul, with me, with Christiana, for I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Seeing yourself this way, the way the Bible speaks about us as believers, this is how God is making life simple because this is our identity. Our very life is in Jesus. He is your life, believer. But there is a third point, and I think it adds a texture here and uh, an understanding that takes us even deeper, and that is the glory of Christ. In verse 4, he writes this, that our life hidden with Christ in God, that when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, this is an interesting phrase. Uh, clearly, it's pointing to his return, but it does remind us that all of our lives are about the simple focus of the glory of Christ. We live, he lives in us for his glory. But it is a glory, you may remember in our study of John 17, that he shares with us. 
It is a glory that he shares with those whom the Father has given to him. Remember that wonderful prayer. There were several sections in that prayer where he spoke about this very issue. He prayed this in the very beginning, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He wants to be restored to that place of glory that is rightfully his. But then he says this later, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given to me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This focus on the glory of Christ and our seeing him and will appear with him in glory is really, I think, a reference to this reality that Christ has shared this glory that he prays for from the Father with us. He's given it to us. John picks this up in his first letter, chapter 3, when he talks about Jesus returning. And he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been, not been yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Matthew Henry says this, we shall then appear with him in glory, he says. It will be his glory to have his redeemed with him. He will come to be glorified in his saints, and it will be their glory to come with him and to be with him forever. You see, all the glory of heaven, we know, belongs to Jesus. The lamb, as we sing so often, is all the glory. That is where our eyes will set themselves, upon him, not upon the garment, not upon uh, anything else that we see, but upon our bridegroom's face. We will not gaze at glory, but on the king of grace, not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand, because... The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. But he shares it with us. He shares that glory. He promises us that when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. His glory is ours because of his grace and because of our union with him. We have a share in that glory. And brothers and sisters, according to Paul, here and elsewhere... If that is ours, the glory yet to be revealed, what can this world offer us that would draw and attract us when we have that waiting for us in heaven? Assured uh, inheritance kept for us. That's how the Bible speaks about the putting off of sin in light of the glory to come. We have a share in his glory. What appeal can the things of this world have any longer to us? Well, this, I believe, as we've looked at these three things very briefly, this is how I believe God is making life simple again in Christ. 
you see, there is no more confusion, no more divided hearts, no more self-glorification, no more setting our minds and our hearts upon the things of this world, no more living in sin and the emptiness of this life. Everything is now Christ. He is our all in all. We are united to him in his death and resurrection. Therefore, we walk in newness of life by his grace alone. We abide and cling to him like the branches do to the vine. And Jesus said, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Our life is now secure in him where he is now at the right hand of God the Father. We are secure in him. We don't have any need to fear what man can ever do to us. Life is simple now. It's focused all on Christ. We share in his glory so that our one single aim is to bring him more and more glory to the praise and honor of his name in everything that we do. That's the simplicity of the Christian life. The devil still wants to complicate things. He still wants to draw us into confusion every day by causing us to forget who we really are now in Jesus Christ. His attack remains the same. Has God really said this about you? Has God really said this about you tonight? When we say that God is making life simple again, we're, you know, we're not saying that he makes life easy. He never promises to make life easy. That's not what simple means. Life is hard, a daily battle fought, flesh warring against the spirit, the spirit warring against the flesh in a battle that will rage on and on until we lay down our armor and go home to be with Jesus. Life is hard. In fact, it is even at this very moment that we realize what God says to us in our baptism really begins to be hard. That's when we begin to realize it, isn't it? When we take our stand, we say, for Christ, when we identify with him, that's when we really begin to struggle because now we have the spirit wrestling against the flesh. Now we're in the battle, if you will. As infants who are baptized according to the scriptures, we're taught by our parents from the earliest of our years that we must struggle against sin by the power of his grace, that we belong and have been marked out by God for Jesus and that we're to live for his glory alone. If we're baptized as adults into Christ Jesus, we enter the battle fully aware of the cost required of us and made willing by his grace to take our stand with Jesus and to live holy and godly knives for his glory alone. But you see, the key to both of these, whether baptized as infants, baptized as an adult, the key to both of them is simply to remember what God has said about us to never forget who we are and what was said about us in our baptism. I love the words of David Garner. Uh, Nathaniel has him as one of his professors. He enjoys him thoroughly as I do, but David Garner, professor at Westminster in a recent article in Westminster Magazine wrote this. He's writing about identity. He's writing about the craziness of the world in which we live. He's really writing, calling us back to the simplicity of the Christian life, of our union with Christ, our identity in him. And he says this, so helpful. It is time, he says, that we breathe in God's authoritative, life-giving word afresh. 
According to Holy Scripture, God created you and me. He defines us. He interprets our status and our identity, and his language matters. Though the cultural waters in which we swim seem to make our sense of things the ultimate determiner of reality, it is not so. What is so is what God declares, no matter what we think, no matter what we feel. It's what God says that's important. And this is what God says about you tonight, believer. If you are a Christian, you are in union with Jesus Christ. Everything he ever experienced in this life, he did in your place. And you were united to him in it all. So that every step along the way has implications now and forever for your life. Your life is in Jesus You have no life of your own any longer. You were bought with a price. You belong to him. That is the simplicity of the Christian life. No confusion, no complication. You belong to Jesus. You now share and will forever share, and you will live in the glory of Christ. That is a promise that will never be taken away. This means that as you look back to your baptism, because that is where Christ first spoke these things about you, where he first marked you for himself. You need to remember that daily as you battle the foolishness of this world. And it is foolishness. It is blindness and folly. It is rooted in the confusion and the complication of this fallen world. But God has called you to a simple life, a simple life of union with Christ, where you know that your life is in him and that his glory belongs to you. In Christ, that is what God is doing, making life simple again with one aim, one focus. You belong to Jesus, blood-bought, body and soul. Everything you now are is because of him, and you simply are called to live by the grace that he has promised to give you. Christiana, you are Jesus. You belong to him. You are blood-bought. You are his. And your life moving forward, as it is true of all of us, is the simple Christian life of remembering these things. Let us pray. Father, how we rejoice that you have not made this life complicated beyond our ability to comprehend or understand. But you have rooted everything we ever talk about in this church, from this pulpit. Everything is rooted in this truth, that we are Christ's, that he is ours. He is our life. We are united to him. And we are called to live out of that every day. Grant us grace that we may do so to the glory and praise of your name and how we thank you and praise you for these truths which guide and lead us. Help us to hear them, to believe them, to live accordingly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.